So this morning's reading is Romans chapter 3, 1 to 20. Start by praying and then I'll just give a bit of an introduction to the passage before we read it. Father in heaven, you are a good God. You are a good speaking God and we praise you and we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you give us humble hearts this morning. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon us. We pray you'd give us understanding. We pray we would believe your words. And we pray that you would help us respond to them in all humility and grace. And we pray this morning that we might see Christ as the one we need before all other things. In Jesus' name, Amen. One of my uh, favourite artists, music artists, is uh, Tracy Chapman. In fact, before that it was uh, Boyzone, Ronan Keating, but I found out that they were copying Tracy Chapman. Let me just read out some of the words to one of the, uh, one of my, uh, one of the songs that I like the most of hers. Starts like this, sorry, it's all that you can't say, years gone by and still, words don't come easily like sorry, like sorry. She continues, forgive me. It's all that you can't say. Years gone by and still, words don't come easily, like forgive me, forgive me. One of my other favourite artists, I don't know why I'm embarrassing myself so so early on, but Elton John, um, much more briefly, he just says, sorry seems to be the hardest word. So this theme that um, non-Christian artists, well, I don't know if they're Christians actually, but I don't think they are, uh, love to love to sing about or recognise is that we find it so hard to say sorry, don't we? We find it so hard to humble ourselves. Do you find that in your experience when you know you've been wrong, yet you feel, still find it so hard to say to someone, I'm sorry. It is so hard to humble yourself. There's like this internal power inside you that wants to stop you saying to someone else, I'm sorry. We really don't like to humble ourselves. We really want to be right. We love to think highly about ourselves. We love to be self-righteous, as we might say. But it's so important to humble ourselves. We know that in relationship, don't we? We know if we don't say sorry to people that things aren't reconciled, and yet it's so hard. It's so important to humble ourselves. And that's not just true in human relationships. That is true in our relationship with God. We must humble ourselves. But I hope we'll see this morning that it's worth it to humble ourselves. Now in a second, I'm going to read uh, these verses from Romans. But before we do that, I just want to give it a background. It's sort of, we're coming in halfway through quite a complex part of an argument. And this guy, the Apostle Paul, he's God's messenger. And he's writing to this church in Rome. And as he writes to them, he says, I'm going to write to you and I've got the best news ever. I've really got some good news that I want you to understand and I want you to enjoy. And this news is amazing. But before he tells us what this really good news is, he seems to come forward with just bad news after bad news after bad news. And what he's doing, he's showing us the beauty of something in contrast to something that's not beautiful at all. So 
If you're a jeweler and you want to see the, the, the beauty or the clarity of a diamond, you put it before a backcloth, don't you? Something very dark that shows you the beauty of the diamond. Or, or maybe more commonly to data experience, if you're watching a PowerPoint presentation. Or if you're going to the cinema, a really good cinema, the lights are out, aren't they? The lights are out so that you see the beauty of the cinematic experience far more clearly. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He's really turning the, the lights out. And he's been dimming them ever since halfway through chapter 1. And we're now in chapter 3. And now the lights just go completely out. It's completely dark. And the reason he's wanting to turn the, the lights right out is so that the people he's writing to, and by implication us, really see the beauty of what is on display. We really see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how's he been dimming the lights? He started off by saying that God is angry. He's actually angry. The, the word he's been using mostly is wrath. And he talks about God's wrath, God's fury is being revealed to the whole human race. And he starts off in chapter one, halfway through, and he says, he says that God's wrath is being revealed against everyone. And he says the reason why God is so angry is because people don't acknowledge God in this world. We don't give thanks to God in this world. In fact, we do the opposite. Not only do we not God thank God for the world that we live in, there are many, many good gifts. Life is hard, but there are many, many good gifts in life, aren't there? Like food, like people, like countryside. We enjoy them without any reference to God. And in fact, we give other people, other things, credit for the things uh, we should have given God credit for. And we don't thank God. We live in a way that doesn't revere him, that doesn't honour him. We li live in a way as we please. And again, in chapter one, Paul talks about the wickedness of the human race. And he says, not only is the human race wicked in and of themselves, their own behaviour, but it's our inclination to approve of wicked behaviour. We don't think, oh, I did something bad, but never mind. Our, our, our nature is to do things bad and say, you too, join me. You do something bad as well. Now, as the Apostle Paul is writing, he's saying, this is what the world is like. But he's writing to a church that is a mixture of Gentiles and Jews. So Jews are God's special people and the Gentiles are everyone else. And as, he write, as he's writing, it's as if he's saying, as if he's hearing the Jews going, yeah, Paul, that's right. You tell them the world is really bad, aren't they? The world does do loads of stuff wrong. We see it on the news. The world is awful. You're right to judge them. But then he turns on them. He says, why are you cheering? Why are you cheering? They say, yeah, we're not as bad as the world. They say, we know what is right. They say, yeah, we're God's special people. You're right to judge everyone else. But Paul says, I don't know why you're saying that. Yes, you're, you, you might not be as bad as them, but you still do the same things in your hearts. Deep down, you're exactly the same. He says, you might know what is right more than those who aren't God's people. But that gives you less of an excuse. You actually know what's wrong and yet you still do it. They go on to say, yeah, but we're God's special people. We've been circumcised. He says, no, no, that's meant to symbolise you're changed on the inside. You're no better. You're no better at all. And that leaves the Jews, God's special people, asking a question or maybe an objection. They're saying, come on. 
you, you, surely there's some advantage of being a Jew. You're saying there's no advantage to being a Jew. There's got to be some advantage of being a Jew. And that's where we get to today. That's the question that comes up from our passage. Is there any advantage of being a Jew? Now I'm going to read this passage. And really the main thing I think this passage is saying is that absolutely no one is right with God. Absolutely no one is right with God. You might have been expecting a pick-me-up on Sunday morning, but the message is absolutely no one is right with God. No one. Slightly more nuanced with that, but that's the big idea. No one is right with God. So let me read that now. So Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better? Are we, sorry, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, main, main point of this passage is absolutely no one is right before God. You probably felt that particularly as we were reading the second half of the passage. But it starts off really with a focus on the Jews. And the Apostle Paul is basically saying, when it comes to being right with God, the Jews have no advantage. When it comes to being right with God, the, God, the sorry. When it comes to being right with God, the Jews have no advantage. Now, what's going on here is it's it's a dialogue. It's a back and forth between G, between Paul and the people he's speaking to. Question, answer, question, answer. And sometimes it would be an actual question. Sometimes it's a hypothetical question. So if to say, Paul's saying, I know you're not asking this, but let's just draw out the conclusions of it. And there are four questions, and I want us to go through them. So the first question is, look, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Is there any advantage of being a Jew? Let me read that uh, verse one. 
Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? They're sort of saying, look, well, you're saying we're under judgment like everyone else. So is there any advantage of being a Jew? It's like saying you can't be right. You've made us being Jews pointless. You've made our circumcision count for nothing. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 there is advantage of being a Jew. So look at verse 2. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's like the Jews have loads of advantages. And to begin with, well, the most important thing is that you have the oracles of God. You have heard God speak. That's been your history as a nation, to hear God speak. And saying to begin with, we don't have a next off. That comes a lot later on in the letter. But he's saying, look, for now, you just need to know you have a massive advantage. You've heard God speak. In other words, they had the, we've had the Old Testament. You know who the creator is. We live in a great world. And you know that it is God who created this world out of nothing. You know that it's God who's put you in this world. You know that God is the God who gives blessing in this world. But more than that, you've had the promises of God. That's what circumcision symbolises in the body of the men. They've had the promises of God, the promise to bless them. It could not be clearer. God has promised to bless you. And and those promises were fulfilled throughout the history of the Jews. They were rescued from slavery. Through nothing they'd done, they were rescued and placed in a promised land, a land of blessing. He had blessed them in the past. And more than that, in this land, this wonderful land flowing with milk and honey, a little paradise, God had given them a law. He said, this is how to live. This is the law of life. I will show you how to live. They've been blessed like no other nation had been blessed. And more than that, God said, I'm going to dwell and live amongst you. Firstly, in a tent, then in a temple. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to teach you how you should approach me. I'm going to teach you about your relationship with me. Although I'm so holy, I will live among you. But you can approach me. You can approach me through sacrifice. You can approach me through your priests. I will answer your prayers. God had made them so many promises. And they'd been taught about God. So in other words, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Much in every way. There are loads of advantages of being a Jew. And yet, he's also said there's no advantage when it comes to being right with God. So can you feel the tension? We'll, 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 we'll sort of unravel the tension uh, shortly. So Paul is saying Jews are going to get judged just like everyone else. So they say, well, what's the advantage of being a Jew? He said much in every way you had the promises of God. So then the question comes back as if to say, Well, you're saying, but we're still under judgment. We're not using the advantages. So the next question comes up. So hold on a second, Paul. If you're saying that we've been unfaithful, doesn't that mean God's unfaithful as well? God's promised to bless us. We've been unfaithful. Well, God's blessings haven't come true. So you're saying now God's unfaithful. Let's let's see that for ourselves. So look at verse three. What if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. So God's made these promises. God's promised to bless, but we're being judged. If God's promised to bless and we're experiencing judgment or cursing, surely God is shown to be unfaithful. 
That's the question. You can understand the question. The Apostle Paul says, no, no, not at all. Look at the answer. By no means. God is not unfaithful. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. You see, God is not only justified, he's not only seen to be good in his blessing. He's also justified in his cursing, in his punishment. Now, I guess we all sort of know that's true, but we don't often feel that's true. I just want you to feel it a little bit. I don't know if you've been following much of the Ukraine-Russian war. I've been following loads of it. One of the things that I find really harrowing is when Ukraine has been pushing back against Russia and they're re-liberating villages and towns that have been held by the Russians. And just in a very, very short time, you're hearing the atrocities of what's gone on in uh, Ukraine, towards the Ukrainians by the Russian soldiers. And you, you just really feel this is so wicked. I and mean, when you hear two wars, uh, two nations at war, you think oh, this is, it's quite high level, isn't it? You think this is a political war. But when you actually hear the human stories behind it, it's horrific. Surely God's got to judge. Surely it's good that he judges. Or maybe you're following the story about the horrific uh, massacre of Thai nursery children just uh, this week. Uh, it was sort of three-year-olds, children. I've, I've got, I've got a four-year-old, and so actually he's five. This birth this week, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. Halfway through that, and these children, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, being killed. Surely there's got to be justice. Surely there's got to be judgment. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying God is right to judge. God is right to judge. So the Jews are saying, well, one second, if God is going to judge us. Surely he's going to be unfaithful because he's promised to bless us. And the Apostle Paul said, no, no, no. When God judges sin, that is part of his glory. Look at verse 4. By no means let God be true, though every man, everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, Question one, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Yes, an advantage of being a Jew. You've received the promises of God. Question two, well, hold on a second. That means God is seen to be unfaithful because we've not received those promises. No, 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 no. That's not either because God is justified when he judges sin. Question three then, it's getting really technical now. The Jews say, well, hold on a second. If when we sin, we show that God is good, that means he shouldn't be punish, punishing us because we have made him look good through our sin. It's getting slightly ridiculous now. And very briefly, um, it's a slightly circular argument because then he won't judge them and then he won't be seen to be good. So it's a self-defeating argument. But look what the Apostle Paul, how he concludes that argument, verse 8. And why not do evil that's, that good may come? Is that what you're really saying? That we should do evil so God should come? It's ridiculous. He finishes off their condemnation is just. Goes back to the question then, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Is there any advantage? Surely we're special. And he concludes verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Is there any advantage of being a Jew? No, because when it comes to being right with God, we're all under sin. So summarising, what's going on here? Uh, the Apostle Paul saying, uh, sorry, the, the, the people object to Paul saying, surely you can't be saying that us Jews were in exactly the same situation 
as everyone else. And Paul said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Although you had God's word, although you had God's promises, you're in exactly the same situation when it comes to being right with God. You still did what should not be done. Now, we're in very different situations. I, I guess there are very few of us here are Jews. We're very different circumstances from these objections. But very often, I guess it's the same heart, isn't it? The main message here is absolutely no one is right with God. And we might want to object. We might want to object. We might want to say, hold on a second, I'm a churchgoer. Surely there's some advantage of the fact that I'm a churchgoer. And of course, there are advantages of being a churchgoer. You get to hear the word of God. You might say, hold on a second, I've got Christian parents. I've come a Christian family. I'm not really living for God at the moment. But surely there's some advantage. I've been to youth group when I was growing up. I've now, I'm now, I've now come to the student programme at Focus. I've been to not any old church. I've been to a good church. I've been to a Bible teaching church. I've been to a Presbyterian church. Surely there's some advantage of that. You might think that's rubbish. You might be a Baptist. I've gone to a Baptist church. Surely, God, there's an advantage of being a Baptist. You might think, I've been baptised. I take the Lord's Supper regularly. Yes, there are advantages to all these things. They're wonderful things. But at the end of the day, they don't deal in and of themselves with our root problem. Is that we're all under sin. At the end of the day, we haven't obeyed God's law. Just look back with me to chapter 2, what Paul says. It's like a summary, actually, of, of how God treats everybody. So look at um, chapter 2, verse 6. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. There is no advantage of being a Jew in and of itself. There is no advantage of being a churchgoer. There is no advantage of going to Christian programmes. There's no advantage of having been baptised. There are no special cases. At the end of the day, we're all under sin. You must say, but I, but, but, there's no buts. No but eyes. There is, no one is right with God. Being a Jew gives you no advantage. And we just really need to hear this. Being a church attender, having some sort of uh, Christian culture, there is no advantage in and of itself. And Paul go on now to explain, explain why. So look in the next, uh, ten verse, uh, next uh, few verses, from verse 9 down to verse 20. There's no advantage of being a Jew, and no advantage of being a church girl. Why? Because everyone is under sin. Now, Paul's not saying the Jews are any worse, but he's more saying the Jews are no better because everyone is under sin. Now, very often it's said that we are a divided nation. It's often said of the states, really divided nation. But there's a sense in which uh, we feel that in the UK as well, don't we? We're quite a divided nation. And if we went, if we uh, looked at the census, the census was done just a very recently, we see these huge polarities. Uh, we're very divided. Um, we divided over, we sort of lean to the left politically or right politically. And, and maybe that's always been the case, but those identities seem to be felt more and more recently. 
seems the gap between the rich and the poor is growing, between progressives and traditionalists. Many other ways we can uh, divide up our identities, can't we? Male, female, uh, white, non-white, heterosexual, LGBT. We divide it in many, many different ways. But there's one way in which we are all identical. If the survey came out, what percentage of the UK, people living in the UK are under sin? 100%. No exceptions. Everyone, by nature, is under sin. That means, yeah, people out there are bad. People outside the church are bad. But by nature, we are just the same. The scriptures actually testify against God's own people, how they're under the deep power of sin, to demonstrate that everyone is under sin. And that's what we get in these verses, verse 10 to verse 18 in particular. It's trying to demonstrate to us how we're all under sin. Now you might be thinking, I'm not particularly under sin, I'm not a particularly bad person, I'm, I'm quite polite. And, you know, having got to know people at this church, and most churches I've been to, that is generally the case. People do seem to be quite nice and quite polite. But what we're going to see here is actually Paul really showing us what the nature of sin is. And we get the nature of sin here, and we get also how sin manifests itself. So just the first couple of verses, we see that actually sin itself is hostility to God. So um, verse 10 to 12, we, we get almost like a definition of sin. Let me read out verse 10 to 12. Um, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And then the key verse, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not one. So the definition of sin is not that it's not murder. It's not rape. It's not theft. Actually, a far better uh, definition of sin was given uh, a bit earlier on in chapter 1. It's not giving glory to God. It's not giving thanks to God. It's relational. And we see that here as well. It's sort of bookended uh, by the vertical relationship with God. So verse 11, no one seeks for God. And at the end, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, our big issue It's not firstly how we treat each other. Our big issue is our vertical issue. Now, again, we might say, well, hold on a second. I basically am a God seeker. I'm not actually directly hostile to God. But I think even as believers, it's often shown in our prayers. It's shown in our plans. Because we rarely pray and mean it. Lord, I'll do anything for your glory. Please, anything for your glory, no matter what the cost, anything for your glory. I'm much more likely to pray, I don't know about you, but something like this. Lord, once I'm comfortable, once I'm secure, once I'm happy, once I've got happy children, then then I'll be ready to think about your glory. But obviously what I've done first is really I've, I've sought my own glory first, haven't I? I've not sought to give glory to God. Very often, our, our behaviour, our behaviour is, it, it looks like we're seeking God, doesn't it? We say, well, hold on a second, I'm not, I, I, I agree that stealing is wrong. I believe that violence is wrong. I believe that murder is wrong. And it looks like we're, we're seeking God. So we think, well, I, I seek God, I, I agree with God. 
But very often the reality is we're just describing the world that we like to live in. I mean, I don't want to live in a world, it's not because I'm a Christian, by the way, I don't want to live in a world where theft is high. I don't like crime. You probably don't like crime either. I don't like crime. I don't like murder. I don't like violence. But none of those things mean I'm seeking God. None of those things mean I'm agreeing with God. Well, I'm just saying these because it's, they're my preferences. Oh, and it turns out that on those things, God agrees with me. But I'm not seeking him. And that's the issue. No one seeks God. And this not seeking God is manifest in our hostility to one another. Again, let me read verse 13 to 14 for us to see that. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So really manifest in our words. Again, we know how to be superficially polite, don't we? We know how to make friends. We know how to get people to like us. Some of us better than others. But that's our aspiration, isn't it? That's why we're quite kind to each other. But as soon as the consequences of our words, the personal consequences back to, for us don't count, then we really see what our words can be like. That's why um, social media is full of bile, isn't it? That's, that's the general um, quality of conversation on social media. It's pretty nasty, isn't it? It's full of cursing. Um, when I was preparing this sermon, I was actually doing a lot of it in Weatherspoons. Don't you get the wrong impression? Uh, it's good to get out of the house. It's warm there. You can get free refills um, all morning of coffee. As I was working, I was getting a bit frustrated with the people behind me because they were talking quite loudly. And I remembered, oh, that's not their bad. That's my bad. I'm working in a pub. <laughs> but um, a couple of students behind me, and I reckon I would have been friends with them. Uh, uh, nice enough people, the ordinary people. But I just, I guess it was partly because I was studying this at the time. After the sort of initial uh, niceties and catching up, there was the really sort of getting into the nub of their conversation. And basically, it was like 40 minutes of just complaining about their housemates, their flatmates. These are their friends, just complaining. And the weird thing was, about an hour later, they left. Uh, another couple, a couple of guys just in front of me, had a very, very similar conversation. I used to experience this when I was um, commuting. I used to be uh, working at a bank in London. You get on the commute and you often overhear other people's conversations. And not the sort of the functional conversation like, you know, how am I going to be, yeah, be there in five minutes? But the sort of the actual chit-chat. So often the conversation is about other people and so often it's negative. And of course, again, you know, we all do the same thing, don't we? Uh, it's so easy to laugh at, uh, to patronise, to dismiss people behind their backs. Again, we do it in quite a, a clever way. We do it in a way that sort of maybe sometimes manifests care, but we love to talk about other people, don't we? And in particular, we love just to speak ill of them. It makes us feel a bit better and puts them down a little bit more. Again, I'm... I don't know if you watch um, Strictly Come Dancing. I don't. Um, or X Factor. Who, who are the most popular judges? Who, who are the judges people love to listen to? Maybe not most popular on word, but we love to hear uh, Craig Revel Horwood. We love to hear Simon Cowell. They're the people whose opinions we really love to hear. They're the people who make it watchable. Why? Because from their mouths come bitterness and curses, become criticism. And it's what titillates us. It's, it's what we love to hear. And then verse 15 to 17, there's sort of 
and violence. It's not so much words here, more just general violence. Not necessarily just physical violence. It starts off like that. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Now, I wouldn't say we're a particularly violent society. It's interesting how in a non-violent society, we're sort of throwing out boxing because it's not violent enough because you wear gloves, you're not allowed to kick. And we're now in sort of mixed martial arts where the gloves are off, literally. And, and, and you know, the rules are there are no rules. And that's the thing that appeals to us in violence. I guess we, we do like to, I mean, I don't, I don't like violence because partly because I'm a coward. We, we often don't enact violence because we're fearful of the repercussions. But we, we do like to be aggressive sometimes. We like to be bitter, don't we? Again, as I've done, really felt this in myself, as I've moved house recently and moved country recently, there's so much administration you've got to do. And these days with these faceless corporations, um, you have to ring up numbers and obviously they don't have people sitting around. So you're on hold for a long time. And it's so frustrating when you're on hold for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And then the person you speak to can't help you. And sometimes they can't help you. Not Sometimes it's your fault you've called the wrong number, but sometimes you've called the right number and they can't help you. And it's so frustrating because they should be able to help you. And sometimes I find myself really wanting to give them a piece of my mind. It's not physical violence, but what do I want to do? I really want to ruin their day because they've ruined my day. Where is that coming from? It's coming from my heart. It's, it's, it's coming from the sin that is within me. And what we get here in these uh, eight, ten verses is a description, Paul saying, is of God's people. It's a description of God's people. It's from the Old Testament and it's talking about the Jewish people. It's from the people whose scriptures it is. And basically Paul's argument is this. He's saying, look, if this is what God's people are like, the one who have God's scriptures, they've got the best chance. And if that's what they're like, if they're condemned by sin, then the whole of humanity is under sin. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's description of God's people, but everyone is held under sin. And as if Paul's arguing like this, he's saying that just imagine society where the most respectable people in society were bad. So imagine if the teachers were violent. Imagine the nurses were corrupt and the police are lazy. What does that say about the whole of society? A pretty sick society. So even the Jews are this bad. They had the best chance out of any nation. That actually, it's not that they're any better or any worse. They just had a much better opportunity. But they're the same. What does this say about society? Well, the conclusion is the whole world is under God. And absolutely no one is right with God. It's like a spiritual x-ray. We've got a big problem. We're all under sin. There have been excuses after excuses after excuses. No, no, I, I will be all right with God. Paul says, no, every mouth may be stopped. He wants us to get rid of our excuses. He wants us to feel the darkness that we might look at the beauty. I'm going to hear about more about the beauty in the coming weeks of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. But before we really get there, let's just think about the implications of this passage. And the first is that surely we've got to ditch the excuses. We've got to ditch the excuses. We've got to stop saying, 
I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you I'm not as bad as them. I thank you that at least I know what is right. At least I'm religious. At least I'm a churchgoer. None of these stack up. See, only once you really believe the problem, only once you really believe that you're under sin, will you appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. And again, you know, I confess very often, it's very hard to get out of this mindset. Lord, but I, but I am okay. If that's you, pray, Lord, please show me my sin. Please convict me of my sin. He will do that. Not because we want you to make you feel down. Not because the script God wants you to make you feel down. He wants to show you how loved you are, despite yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you. And secondly, remember the gospel. Remember what the gospel really is. When I was at church search, where the students come to find a church, they ask me, what's your church like? Someone asked me, are you an inclusive church? And I have to say, I was slightly stumped by the question. I've been thinking about how I'd answer that in a slightly more helpful way. I wasn't very helpful for the person who's asking the question. Well, the answer is, yeah, we are absolutely a totally inclusive church. Everyone is welcome at our church. Why? Because everyone is under sin. The scriptures say there is no one righteous, not even one. No one righteous, everyone is unrighteous. But then the Lord Jesus Christ says this, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you're feeling convicted of your sin, and I hope you are feeling convicted of your sin, I hope you're reminded that actually without the Lord Jesus Christ, You are without hope in the world. Why not this morning pray the prayer of the tax collector? Don't you know if you remember the story? Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a good person. One a tax collector, a bad person. The Pharisee goes away helpless because he doesn't recognise his own sin. But the tax collector says seven words, the most important seven words you can ever pray. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord Jesus Christ says about him... That man went home righteous before God, because whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, we really want to feel our sin. We really want to remember that we have no hope without the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to remember what we are like, so then we see Jesus in all his glory. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for rescuing me. Let's start by praying that. Again, or maybe for the first time now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray for your forgiveness. We pray that we would stop justifying ourselves. Please forgive us when we're proud. Please forgive us when we come before you thinking that we're okay. Please forgive us for trying to prove ourselves before you. Please forgive us when we're always pointing the finger at others without remembering our condition before you. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us. Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Please keep us depending on him, not looking to ourselves, but looking to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.